is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is denied again, and Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. What is up, FUVFC Nation? It's another week's installment of FUVFC. It is Thursday, March 23rd. It is Keenan Troy, accompanied by Nick Guzman and Gino Alva. It's been a while since I've uh, put on the headset and strapped in for one of these, but you know, on a maybe an off week in terms of soccer news, we do have some stuff to recap from, you know, let's say the past ten days um, in terms of Europe, but also first time we will be seeing the United States men's national team in action. I'm saying that, you know, ignoring the friendlies that were played earlier this calendar year, just because let's be honest, there was not a whole lot to gain from those. But it looks like a return to normalcy in terms of who was selected to attend camp as they kick off. CONCACAF Nations League play tomorrow night in Granada. But before we get into all that, Nick, Gino, how are we, gentlemen? I'm doing great. It's been a long time since we've sat down and done this, Keenan. But it's nice to be back. Some national team play. I feel like we were building towards that World Cup in November for so long, and now it's kind of like the aftermath of it. And where do you go from here? There's Copa America coming in 2024. So there's some something tangible to build towards that's not necessarily four years from now. So that's nice. But it's it, was, it looks like a good roster for the national team, and I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, it's been a great couple of days. To transition from club level to national team-wise is always great. It's, obviously, it's been longer because it's been three months since the World Cup. But, yeah, I can't wait to get into, uh, you know, recap a couple of European soccer news and, you know, hopefully talk about the men's national team and hopefully uh, hear your guys' thoughts on the Pulsage interview. You guys heard of that. Before we get into Europe and even Pulisic in terms of a heightened focus, the 24-man roster for Granada, I think it's much of the same. You know, Tyler Adams omitted because of an injury he picked up with Leeds United, but goalkeeping trio of Horvath, Stefan, and Turner, I think, you know, coming off of an omission from the World Cup for Zach Stefan, I'd be interested to see if he gets any uh, any burn with the, the first team here in the CONCACAF Nations League. Um, something that I'm really excited about is Miles Robinson back to form. You know, he was dealing with that ACL injury that saw him sidelined for the World Cup. Um, maybe explains why Walker Zimmerman played so much for all those U.S. men's national team haters of Walker Zimmerman, of Thor. Um, in the midfield, you know, Luca De La Torre, Aronson McKinney, Musa, you know, with no Tyler Adams, I think that's who we expect, but... I think in the forward pool is where it really becomes interesting. Uh, Pepe's included, I think, much to the uh, thanks of everyone who's been calling for him. Tim Weah, obviously, Pulisic, 
Reyna, first time playing with the national team since the fiasco over the winter. And then Alex and Dejas from Club America, the recent national team entry, declaring that he will play for the United States men's national team. As we get set for these upcoming matches, Nick, I know, as you were saying, you know, the the buildup was so great for the World Cup that it's, at least in my opinion, it's a little tough to get up for these games, especially because we have automatic qualification for the next World Cup, so... It, it really doesn't feel like our next important soccer match probably won't be. I mean, we play Mexico April 19th. That's always a big one. But in terms of the outlook for the U.S. men's national team, it's kind of, I guess, whatever. Like, we're going to play in 2026, and until then, it's kind of just show up and hopefully get better. But is there any storylines you're looking out of the, for out of this? I mean, I personally am really... Looking to see what kind of statement Gio Reyna makes. I mean, he's been in really strong form for Dortmund. Love to see that carry over. And, you know, without Burhalter on the wheel, maybe he gets some more freedom to be the kind of impact player that he is. But at the end of the day, it's Granada away, El Salvador at home on Monday. These are two easy wins for the United States. I know that there's no such thing as an easy win in CONCACAF, as we've seen, you know, across the years. But these are two wins that... For the United States to continue this upward trend, these these are must. I won't say must wins, but these are games that if you lose, it kind of raises the alarms. Yeah, Granada away is not at all the same as say Honduras away or Costa Rica away in World Cup qualifying. It's a totally different environment. But I think the reason why these games sort of feel a little mellow just is just because we don't have a coach right now. You don't really know what we're building towards or whose vision we're. Are we still under you know Greg's? grand plan for for 2026 and and building that is he going to come back or are we going to go in a different direction so it's kind of just a good opportunity to see players who we didn't get to see at the world cup who maybe missed out who are now getting an opportunity sort of show themselves whether that's a guy like Gio Reyna who ever we all know what happened with the blackmail and all that but now he's back and it seems like he's he has a positive relationship with the players in this camp and, and some veteran Players like Tim Ream have come out and, and talked about it and says they've moved past it as a group. So you're interested to see what his impact is. People like Ricardo Pepe, who were snubbed. And then also people returning from injury. Miles Robinson looked like he was going to be locked into starting guitar based on what he did in the beginning of World Cup qualifying and in that Gold Cup in the summer of 2021. And then that, that awful Achilles injury takes him out of contention. But now he's back, and it'll be interesting to see how quickly he can he can get back to to sort of national team speed because an Achilles injury is a, a tough injury to come back from especially in a sport like soccer and then there's also players like Brian Reynolds who who, who have dropped off a little bit recently but now get a chance to hop back into national team play Daryl DK who's had his trouble injuries but he's he's got as many physical traits as any U.S. striker right now and then there's the news that Fuller in Balogun is in is in is in Orlando and can you wait so we can I can do, wait. We can do a full segment on you that. You were asking please? me what I was excited for, but those are the things. And there's although it might be hard to see a, a maybe a cohesive narrative right now based on just we've got an interim head coach, Anthony Hudson, who failed at the Colorado Rapids and failed as a manager of New Zealand. So you kind of think what's sort of the long term benefits of having, you know, this camp right now, what can you see? And it's just getting these players reps together and that's always going to be a good thing no matter who the opponent is 
yeah, I mean, you guys know better than me. I definitely see some changes in the midfield, a uh, couple of uh, players that have been called up. But for me, obviously, the perspective is going to be on Reyna. His bounce back after the World Cup, he's been playing really well with Borussia Dortmund. I think a couple of last-minute goals. Um, and he had some moments, obviously. There was a lot of interviews with the coach and, you know, uh, Reyna's father and all the debacle that was happening on the U.S. men's national team news. Even um, Pulisic also had an interview to talk about it. He, you know, gave a really interesting interview that I'm pretty sure you guys uh, saw it. But um, I think this nation league is good. I mean, they're, you know, coming towards the end. And obviously this June will be the semifinals and the finals. So hopefully they can uh, come back to the final and win it again. Um, like they did a couple of years ago against Mexico. But obviously, uh, I'm really excited for next year's Nations League because it's a chance to qualify for the Copa America, which is happening here. And I think it will be good for the national team to be able to play in that competitive atmosphere against South American teams and hopefully prepare for the World Cup that's going to be happening in a couple of years. So definitely a good uh, spell for, for the men's national team. And hopefully... Um, I was I was watching the other day like they were saying Thierry Henry wanted to you know come to the national team like what's your guys' perspective on it because I think it's a little bit un you know it's not yeah well you know, for him to come right now I think we're kind of in this limbo still because Burhalter you know as Nick you talked about it players like Matt Turner Anthony Robinson have joined in Christian Pulisic sentiments of you know we've kind of moved past this as as a team and. We're willing to, you know, welcome Greg back in, and you know he's still the manager that took us to the World Cup, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's still so much to be determined from the U.S. Soccer Federation's point of view in terms of if Greg is going to come back. Because right now, especially with these thoughts from the players, it felt like one of the most compelling reasons Greg wouldn't be the national team manager anymore is because the players you know, might have seen this as a violation of trust and, you know, wouldn't feel comfortable with him returning to be the head coach after everything that happened with the Reynas. But now that it's, you know, gaining more momentum, at least from the player side of, hey, you know, we've moved past this, we're willing to move forward with Greg, I think it kind of puts the U.S. Soccer Federation in a pickle that they maybe weren't expecting in the sense that they were perhaps thinking that, if Greg was going to be reinstated, it would just come from them, not really from the players. But now that the players are kind of giving him support, it puts a candidate like Thierry Henry, who I'm not too big on myself, no. just just not enough managerial experience. And, you know, to have that big of a name attached to the United States men's national team, I think it puts, you know, unwarranted expectations on the play. But all that being said, I think that until things with Greg are resolved, a manager like Thierry Henry or anyone that's kind of vying for this job is still just going to have to sit on the sidelines and wait because right now it's still Burhalter's job to lose, in my opinion, even though he's not employed. Um, and if he doesn't you know, get brought back in, then we can start to see dominoes fall. But in terms of a, a manager such as Thierry Henry, I think it's within the United States' best interest to go an opposite route just because, let's be real, he's a pundit. That's his current employment, and the managerial success isn't there for me, nor is the the fact that him having a bad a big name, I think, is going to place unwarranted expectations on the play of this team and overall be a detriment to kind of the growth we've seen. Yeah, well, Thierry Henry, like you said, it's a huge name, but if you look at his his coaching resume, you know, he's an assistant for Belgium. Then, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was not great at Monaco and not good at Montreal. 
and then he and then he was an assistant for Belgium again. That's you know the name we all know he's one of the best players of all time, but that doesn't necessarily translate into managerial success. I think I think the United States right now are in this awkward position where at least fans feel like we deserve someone better than Greg Berhalter, a little more elite, but I don't know if in the world of international soccer if we're if we deserve that right now or if we're at that point where people you know people are throwing throwing around names like oh we should get Mourinho we should get Zidane those things aren't going to happen we're not at that level yet I think we definitely for sure need a new manager or 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 stick with Greg a decision has to be made by by June by those Nations League finals this can't be a thing that goes on for six months because we're wasting time right now with with Anthony Hudson in my opinion, you know, he knows he's been around the camp. He's so it's likely that he's just sort of continuing what what Greg's philosophy was, considering you know he was his, his assistant coach at the World Cup and he has some some coaching experience. But it's it's a real interesting situation to be in for the U.S. men's national team because Greg Berhalter's. If you look at his resume, I think if you zoom out and look at his resume from objective perspective, it's good what he's accomplished with this men's national team and. People don't like him for, for a variety of reasons. Many of them, I think, aren't really that rational or relevant. But he's been successful in terms of getting results, whether or not, you know, he has a, there's a real case to, to, to bring Greg Berhalter back. But I think U.S. fans and national team fans feel like they deserve someone more than him. But I don't think that feeling is really that conducive with reality. I think those things, I think... Greg Berhalter's about what our level is right now. And I think that's not what people want to hear, but I think it's something they might have to accept. They're definitely in a tough situation, though, because like, we're about to enter the, the semifinals and the finals in June. So not having a manager, you know, it's going to be tough. If they appoint a new manager by the time it's the semifinals, if the, you know, the national team makes it, it's definitely going to be a bit of a struggle to you know, put new players on the pitch and try to find some new tactics to like, you know, defeat these teams who are also in the semifinals. But... I, I personally believe that the, if the players are saying, like, you know, they're putting everything behind what's been happening with Berhalter and uh, and the Reynas, um, for the men's – for the soccer federation, I don't think it's ideal to bring back Berhalter just because, you know, he's going to have to, you know, face all the media with, like, the problems and the whole blackmail situation. So uh, in, in that perspective, I don't think Berhalter is going to come back. But, you know, if the players say, like, they're going – they're they trust in the manager and they trust in Berhalter because I believe Berhalter is a great manager. He took the the team to the World Cup, you know, with a, a young team, a young generation of teams. So um, it's definitely going to be a, a couple of uh, weird months to see what's going to happen with uh, the national team and, and if they're going to get a new manager or they're going to stick with Berhalter. So we're going to see what happens. Other things to be looking forward to with the national team. Nick, you touched on it earlier, but I guess the try – National Florian Balogun. We'll go with that. Or what? I mean, what's yeah, it? Balogun. Balogun, yeah. um, stri- striker for Rems in the uh, league Un in France, having a really good season. Um, he has the ability to represent England, Nigeria, and the United States. Um, you know, there's talks of the United States having recruiting with him. Uh, you know in the past couple months, but things really went up a notch this past week when he withdrew from the England youth camp without an injury, and then he was spotted in Florida 
you know, the the Twitter journalists were doing their doing their best work to find the picture of the bar that there's some saying on it that they cross referenced, you know, true CSI Miami type stuff. But it is confirmed that he was in Orlando and that talks are heating up and you know, he's a young striker, played in the Arsenal Academy before going over to Rams this season, who's and he's lighting it up over there. I feel like, Nick, we are always in this cycle of, I mean, Zendejas is the, is the latest addition to this of dual nationality players having the opportunity to play for the United States, particularly, I want to say, for the sake of, you know, the big worry of the United States is not having a number nine. And it's seemingly all the time that we have these players on bubble watch, which I'm not saying, like, I'm against. I think it's a blessing because this is the kind of stuff that, you know, England and the other powerhouses of the world have a luxury of having is just a plethora of young kids always coming in and, you know, kind of pushing the envelope in terms of I can be the next best thing. Florian is one of those players. But for me, the only worry with recruiting a player like him is the fact that, as we have saw in the World Cup selection, it still seems like, and maybe it was Greg as a manager, maybe it's U.S. Soccer Federation, there's still this, I don't want to say regression, but we did see a regression with Pepe and we saw it with Ferreira. It just feels like, and maybe we'll start to see this improve you know, in the years leading up to 2026 hosting that World Cup at home, but it feels like for the past four years since Josie Altidore kind of, you know, started playing with a walker, um, we haven't been able to adapt a striker, no matter how good they are at the league level, into the United States system. I don't want to say it's a problem with, you know, the talent on the wings or, you know, where this team identity lies because, you know, we saw it throughout qualifying and throughout Nations League that the striker play can be there, but it's always this question of who's it going to be because Pepe Pepe falls off and then Ferreira steps up and then Sargent kind of regains form. And then, you know, there's questions of Jordan Pifak, even though he really wasn't that good for the United States. Daryl DK is always in that conversation. So for me, the question is, is when we're looking at a player like Flo, obviously I want him to declare for the U.S. men's national team because that's just another person in the mix. But I I guess the question is, is, you know, he's getting all this buzz, but are these expectations warranted, unwarranted? I mean, bearing in mind his age, you hope that he's going to get better, but it seems that any time we have somebody in terms of the nine position that has dual nationality or, you know, it's a big signing for the United States men's national team, even though, I mean, is it really a signing? Um it just seems that there's something missing when they step on the pitch, say, after four months. So my only, I guess, question or concern is that he might fall into the Pepe. And maybe it's just the way United States soccer culture is you know, designed that if it's not immediate success and sustained success, they're a bust. But this just seems like another big name that will get recruited to the U.S. and then somehow get lost in the clutter of you know the plethora of attacking options they have to choose from yeah I think there's a couple things there first I would argue that if you put any of the current U.S. men's national team striking options into that Rams team in 27 games I don't think they score 17 goals I don't think they score anywhere close to 17 goals I think 
what he's done in League One this season is is special, and it would a hundred percent be a benefit to bring him in. That being said, there are totally you know reasonable uh, criticisms of of the system that the United States plays and how if it's even conducive to 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 the play of strikers and how every single person that seems to put on that number nine shirt for the United States seems to fail at some point. You know, there'll be a run of games where someone's scoring and then they'll go dry and they'll be on to the next person. But this is a guy who's been on U.S. men's national team fans' radar for a very long time. I think he he suited up for maybe the, the U18s for a couple games and for, for the U.S. before go, going back to play for the England youth team. So since then, you know, it's been on people's radar that he has this eligibility. And... I think it's very clear that he would prefer to play for England. I think that I think he thinks he does he deserved a first team call up after what he's done in League One this season. And when that didn't come in, and they asked him to go play for the U21s again, I think that's probably what the last straw was for him to start looking elsewhere. Because he's really made no indication before this point that he has really had any interest in playing for the United States. He's just sort of said things that he's keeping his options open. But I think it's been clear that he wants to play for England. But if he accepts that you know he's not going to get in in front of people like Harry Kane or Tammy Abraham or those kinds of players which I don't think he is going to realistically I think he's a step below that um then the United States is a great option I mean there's so many young players here young players who play in England who who's for because he's he's an Arsenal player it's just going to be interesting to see if he decides to choose the United States. Him being in Orlando is is huge. The fact that he's around the camp and that's confirmed, it shows that the interest is legitimate and the, the U.S. are almost there in terms of getting him recruited. I think the biggest reason why this is so important is it's not like he's a, he's a good young center mid because we have a lot of those. He's a good young nine who we don't have. We have a lot of young nines, but do we have any good young nines? That's still up for debate. And he on paper, seems to fill that void perfectly. Um, I'll be interested to see, you know, after the season in terms of his club career, where he goes. I think it'll probably be back to Arsenal and in preseason he'll try to cut it out for that team. But, you know, that's a team that might win, win the Premier League and it's not easy to break into that squad. So it could be on loan again for the next season. But it's a player who fills an immediate need for the United States and that's why there's there's so much reason to be ex to be excited. You know, there's plenty of, of reservations you can have about the system the United States play and how it seems to just damage strikers and how they, they can't be productive. But I think Balogun is a step above everything we have right now in terms of quality at that striker position. And I think the United States need to do everything they can to bring him into the mix because it's a player that can change the look of our team completely. A number nine like him. And... I'm excited to see where it goes because this is a guy who's been, you know, his name's been tossed around for so long, but there's never been any sort of movement in terms of him thinking about choosing the United States. But that's happened now, and I think if he if he decides to suit up for the red, white, and blue, that'd be an enormous benefit to the program. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think men's national team have been searching for a productive striker because I think what we saw in the World Cup, it really wasn't, you know, the uh, it wasn't really a great performance from the strikers. I mean, I, I'm just looking at this statistic. You know, there were six shots, one on target, and there was no goals in the first four matches of the World Cup for the men's national team. And obviously there's a lot of options. Who can be that number nine, the main role? I mean, Sargent, Pepe, and, and 
Jesus Ferreira had a couple of minutes, but he wasn't really clinical in those matches. So, yeah, like you said, uh, Nick, if the men's national team wants to get the player, then they'll get the player. And I feel like the men's national the men's national team, excuse me, can finally have a star number nine and, you know, the main number nine for, for this men's national team. All right, boys. I think that's enough United States men's national team talk uh, for today, just because I think after for next week's episode, whether I'm on it or not, we'll have a better view of what we can assess from the growth of this team moving forward again tonight, uh, excuse me, tomorrow night against Granada in Granada, and then Monday the 27th at home versus El Salvador. So two games for United States men's national team that, yeah, Granada on the road is different than Granada at home, but, you know, I think the the overwhelming consensus from men's national team's fans is that in order to take that next step forward, Granada away has to be the same result as Granada at home. And, you know, barring a couple teams in CONCACAF, every, every road game, needs to be a strong performance because in order to make that jump into the you know upper echelon of national teams, you have to be able to play on the road and play the same style of football no matter where you are. We did miss some you know Champions League news, some European League news um, from last week without a podcast. Um, biggest news, I would say, um, perhaps this is me being a biased Liverpool fan, is that Liverpool season is effectively over. Um, maybe they'll push for top four. Um, a one-nil defeat to Real Madrid sees them exit the Champions League on an aggregate of six to two. Uh, Napoli dispatches Frankfurt. Porto and Inter play to a nil-nil draw, seeing Inter go through. And then I think the one that gained the most traction, and you know, obviously had all the headlines attached to it, was the Holland Master class against RB Leipzig went into that match 1-1 on aggregate if I told you it ended 8-1 on aggregate you might say how um, it was to the tune of five goals from Erling Holland that you know really saw it through um, he of course was pitch pitch side after the game talking with Henri you know there were some comments coming out of that I think for me the most you know noteworthy one was he essentially admits that you know City brought me here to win the Champions League. They've won the league, you know, four out of the last five years. You know, you see the goals they put up within the league. It's all well and good. I love this competition. I'm here to win this competition for City. And I think moving forward, as good as Madrid was in that first leg against Liverpool, they played that second leg not to lose and ended up winning one nil. Um, we're still waiting on the draw, but right now I'd say the only heavy hit it's three versus. The field, in my opinion, you've got Bayern, City, and Madrid, and then, not to you know, I don't want to say discredit the rest, but I'm not worried about Chelsea. Sorry, Nick, I'm not worried about Benfica, even though they played really well against Club Bruges. Tottenham looks out of the Champions League. Whoops, um, Inter Milan and AC Milan. I don't think you know any of these teams matching up against those three you favor the other three. So I guess the the real question is in this next draw, I'm just hoping that it stacks up to to where Bayern and City have to face off. I want to see Madrid go for another win, and I, I think that City's ultimate test is can they get back to the final? Because I, I think if they get to the final, they'll win it, but it would really disappoint me as a maybe a City hater, but more of a, just a lover of soccer 
to see them get a cakewalk. The good news for you, Kenyans, they have done the draw. Oh. It was last week. And it is City Byron. <laughs> yeah, it's City Byron. So, Dude, where have I been? So, okay. I'm so far <laughs> off the podcast that... I'll run through it. Yeah. So Please, please. The bracket's totally lopsided. So one side is City Byron, Madrid, Real Madrid-Chelsea. So the winner of City Byron plays the winner of Real Madrid-Chelsea. The other side is Benfica-Inter and then Milan-Napoli. So one of Benfica, Inter-Milan, and AC Milan and Napoli, one of those four teams... Are going to the Champions League final, which Three is a chance for an Italian team to be in the final. What a chance for an Italian team to be in the final! They have a, their only, the only barrier for Italy having a team in the final is Benfica. But so we have some, so we have two totally heavyweight matchups in the quarterfinals in Man City Bayern and then Real Madrid Chelsea a rematch of of last year's quarterfinal where, you know, Real Madrid stormed all the way back after Chelsea came back in that second leg. So, initially looking at this draw, I mean, what an opportunity for Benfica, Inter, AC Milan, and Napoli to not have to play any of the heavyweights and get a chance to go to the final is huge. But for City, Bayern, Real Madrid, and Chelsea, you're going to have to to slug your way through some heavyweights if you want if you want to get to that final match. And that City, Bayern is is the one that stands out the most. You know, Real Madrid obviously have have won the competition last year, but they've been not as great in, in the league this year. And Chelsea, we know how much they've struggled under Grand Potter. But Man City, Bayern, that's a match with absolute heavyweights. Now you throw Erling Haaland into the, into the mix, and that's just a, a, a an, abs, an absolute gem of, of a matchup. But I think my biggest takeaway from this draw is just how lopsided the bracket was. And... and it's going to be really interesting to see that it could be potentially, uh, you know, Man City Napoli final. I think you have to consider Napoli the favorites of those of the four on that side of the back, or just based on how good they've been this season in Serie A and how they absolutely dispatched Eintracht Frankfurt in the in the round of sixteen. You know, for Napoli, they're they're looking at this right now. Okay, this could be an absolutely dream season. We're going to win Serie A, and we could go to the Champions League final if we just, you know, beat teams that. That we've that we've beaten all season in, in AC Milan and possibly Inter Milan in the semifinals, so what an opportunity for Napoli! But for the heavyweights, they've got their work cut out for them to get to get to that final. I think it was a perfect draw. Talk about Chelsea, Madrid struggling in the league, Man City, Bayern powerhouses. The second leg will be in the Allianz Arena, so it's definitely going to be a great atmosphere for Bayern, Benfica, and, and Inter. You know, both teams are really good. Benfica always going to the Champions League in the group stage, and you know. In the past couple of years, Inter has been playing really uh, well so far. Got you know an easy way out to to qualify for the for the quarterfinals. And Milan, their first time back in the quarterfinals in, in over ten years against a powerhouse like Napoli, who's been outstanding this season. Kovačević, and uh, I'm pronouncing it right, Osimen or oh yeah, Osimen. So I'm definitely. I think you know everybody's gonna you know obviously point their their heads towards the City and Bayern match, but I'm looking forward for this Milan and Napoli match. I mean. It's it's a good year for Italian uh, soccer to be back in the Champions League. All these three teams, I think, have been in the quarterfinals have haven't been in the quarterfinals in years. So, um, I, I, if you want, we can talk about predictions about you know these draws. I'm gonna go start with Real Madrid Chelsea. I think you know both teams are struggling in the league. Uh, Pulisic also said that you know I don't think any team wants to face this Chelsea because you know they can bounce back and qualify for the. For the semifinals, but um, what are you guys' thoughts on these prediction scores we're gonna do? I, I think Benfica Inter. I think 
I think that could be Benfica coming out on top. I think Benfica have shown that they're a very good side throughout this throughout this Champions League run that they've been on. You know, beating Inter, they survived some some late woodwork in that in that second leg that Inter hit. But I'm gonna I'm gonna take Benfica in that first leg, and then I just I just it's it feels like maybe the 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 late you know 2000 like 2007 maybe where where Italy's back in this in this the 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 ends of this competition in in the in the real when it get when it comes down to it because it's been a while you know we've had Juventus you know do some things in the in the mid 2010s making two finals but not being able to to take home the trophy now they've kind of sunk back and it's back to Inter and and Milan being being back in this in this position and it's great to see so in that other Milan Napoli I think that's going to be Napoli I I just love what what they've done this season. Osimhen up top has been as good as any striker in Europe this season, barring maybe Erling Holland. He's just been so, so good. So I'd take Napoli in that one. And then the heavyweights, Man City and Bayern. Bayern know how to win this competition. Man City don't. They they crumbled last year in the semifinals against Real Madrid. They seem to crumble every year, but this year, bringing in Holland, maybe there's reason to think it's going to be different. I'd say yeah, I'll take Man City in that in that in a very close back and forth tie, and then Real Madrid, Chelsea. I just don't think Chelsea have enough at this point. You know, you, I guess you could say there's some parallels between their this season and their 2020, 2021 season with with managerial change in in the middle of the season where they, where they let go of Frank Lampard in that one, brought in Thomas Tuchel and he led them to glory. But Thomas Tuchel also kind of righted the ship in the Premier League too and got them top four. Grant Potter has not proved that he can do that in terms of his tactics and, and his game management, which drives me nuts when you're up 1-0 and you automatically park the bus. It's, this isn't Brighton, it's Chelsea. It's you got to be a little more proactive than that. But if he can sort of learn how to do that, maybe Chelsea have a chance. But but right now I think it's Real Madrid is a machine in the Champions League, and we saw what they did to Liverpool, and I fear they could do the same to Chelsea. Yeah, I think I'm siding w- with... Nick on the Benfica pick. I think if we look over the past two years, they don't play the prettiest style of soccer, no. but they play the style of soccer that their you know eleven allows, and they play it pretty well. So I think for an Inter team that you know in that second leg of Porto, like you know you think barely clinging to life, they did and made it through. But I think Benfica understands their eleven to a T and knows how to get the best out of them. So I'm siding with the Portuguese side there. Milan versus Napoli, I, I agree. Oshiman has been in probably the form of his life. I think this summer any club in Europe is going to get their checkbook out and try and sign him. Um, that being said, I think Milan has been, I guess, I don't know how to, I don't know how I want to quantify them because, you know, you look at that first leg against Tottenham, I think that first leg, they probably could have scored two more. And then that second leg, clearly just playing to win, and then Romero gets sent off with a red card, and that kind of sealed it that they just needed to outpossess and, you know, use the numbers to their advantage. But again, I think that, you know, you look at this team, obviously Giroud is maybe the one exception, but this is a team that I feel has grown with each other from the days in which Milan was kind of, an undesirable place to go in terms of assigning just because you knew that they were in and out of the Champions League, really hadn't made a deep run. So 
I like Milan to at least make that interesting. I think just if Oshiman stays in the form that he's in, it's going to be tough for you know that back three that Milan plays to contain him because there were cracks for Harry Kane, and then when Richarlison was introduced to get him behind, and you know Tottenham gave him fits before they were down to ten men. So I think that you know if Oshiman's in form and the rest of Napoli kind of cruises like they did around F- Frankfurt, I like them to advance, and then. Chelsea, I, Pulisic's comments, what are you on, bro? Saying nobody wants to play this Chelsea team right Can he even say that? He hasn't been, like, playing at all. Like, he got his first start in such a long time last weekend. Like, is he in a position to be... No, no. I think a real being, Madrid are listening to that comment, and they're going to... Are they listening to a comment made by a guy who doesn't really play that much? <laughs> like, I hate... I love him so much, but, like, he he's not been good. He's been injured this season, and I don't think he has the room to be saying that no one wants to play you because I think Real Madrid were probably pretty happy with that. Yeah, and draw. I think, you know, Chelsea, that game at the bridge against Dortmund, that 2-0 win, it felt like in a, a road match. Like, you saw, like, obviously Dortmund travels exceptionally well and came in droves and, you know, we're doing the yellow flares and all that stuff. But the bridge, like, you're making it – he makes it sound like going to the bridge is an unconquerable feat. Like – I don't know, and we, I think that you know Madrid obviously having a five-two advantage going into the second leg against Liverpool were content just to possess and you know play really strong in their defensive third, and then you know up front you know eventually getting that rebound goal or I guess cutback goal if you will. But I think that Pulisic and you know Chelsea, if they just look at that one-nil defeat of Liverpool, they might say, yeah, we can beat this Real Madrid team. But in that first leg against Liverpool, I mean, they were world beaters. They just, you know, Liverpool went out to a 2-0 advantage as a Liverpool fan. I said, you know, who cares about the Premier League? Let's go win the Champions League. And then five unanswered goals from Real Madrid. So, yeah, I, I don't think Chelsea does it. I think that there's too much going on in terms of, like, the inconsistency of play there for me to like actually give them a fighter's chance because you know Real Madrid each time they take the field especially in the Champions League that midfield is you know really not going to be beat by many and then Benzema you know as, as long as he's on the pitch they've got a puncher's chance and I don't even think they need a puncher's chance against Chelsea and then that leaves us with Bayern and City Nick I think to your point City hasn't done it it's all Byron does is advance in this competition. That being said, I think they have a game breaker with Erling Holland. And the only question, and I want to get to this, is it becomes where do they prioritize? Because I feel like every year we see this with City when they're in a tight uh, Premier League race. Maybe that explains the dip in form just because they don't rely on their first team guys, even though their entire bench is first team guys at 95% of the other clubs throughout Europe. I'm interested to see. I think Holland's going to get he's, you know, young enough and plays enough to the point where he can do Premier League and Champions League, but I wonder, you know, with the proximity of these ties now, you know, only being separated by a week as opposed to the two weeks we were seeing if, you know, Pep I always feel like kind of shoots himself in the foot always in terms of okay, I will let Holland will play the first leg and then play the match weekend game and then won't start. We'll play, like, Foden as a false nine. Or, like, with Jesus last year, we kind of saw the same thing. So it'll be interesting to see. I hope Pep prioritizes the Champions League for once because that's what it's going to take to beat Bayern. And Bayern, again, just, you know, taking care of business in the Bundesliga. So I like them there. And the last thing I want to touch on, kind of 
talking about city's concerns is this past week, Sporting Lisbon takes care of business against Arsenal in the Champions League. Arsenal now's sole focus is on the Premier League. I think that plays right into their hands. You know, if you look at the table right now, I wouldn't say a comfortable league lead over City because they do have to play them again. But as it sits right now, through 28 matches played, have a eight-point advantage, could be cut down to five with another match coming up against City. So, you know, if City wins out to that match point and beats Arsenal, it could be down to two, which is always scary. But Arsenal right now is in the driver's seat, knocked out of Europe, which I think helps them, even though I think maybe for club prestige you want to get back to the Europa League final. But as Arsenal sits right now, and City sits comfortably in second, you know, United's into the quarterfinals of the Europa League, but at one point we thought maybe a three-horse race, United just completely falls off. I'm wondering now for City, you know, we just kind of had that discussion about where do they prioritize. Do you think that Pep's decisions are going to be based on form in the Premier League, or do you think his decisions are going to be based on motivations to win the Champions League because that's the only thing that's eluded him during his time at in Manchester. I think he's going to try his best to win both, and he has the resources to win both. I think Arsenal are in a great, great spot right now in terms of no more European competition. They can solely focus on the Premier League. They have that lead. Everyone's waiting for them to, to slip up, but they haven't really done it. And they're in the driver's seat, but City every year will come down the stretch, and they've been... They've been coming now for a while at Arsenal, and and they have the resources to to take both competitions and and compete well in both. And I think the biggest thing for Man City is Pep Guardiola just can't get too cute with what he does in that those games against Bayern and in those Premier League games. He always in big games tries to throw in a little tactical wrinkle. He'll play a five at the back, or he'll play Foden at false nine, or he'll do something, and it almost always doesn't work. He just has to realize, okay, I have talented players in a system that works well almost always. I just need to do that and trust that my guys can come out on top because they have some of the most talented players in the world. There's no reason for Pep to to overthink this, this, these games, and especially not the Bayern games or the Premier League. He's just got to trust that his guys are fit enough to to compete in both competitions. I know the World Cup with everything, the fixture congestion, it's tough. But I think Man City, of any club in the world, has the resources to do it. I think you saw, if you've seen the last two seasons, the season where they made the final, I mean, Premier League, they were like 12 points off um, off first. So, like, they had a comfortable, comfortable lead in the Premier League. But in the Champions League, you saw against Chelsea, they kind of crumbled uh, in the whole 90 minutes. So, obviously, the lineup was very different then. Last year, you know, they definitely had a race against Liverpool to, to win the Premier League. So, you saw how they crumbled in the last couple of minutes at Santiago Bernabeu. So, yeah, I mean, this season they have to prioritize uh, the Champions League. They have to start their best players. Holland has to, you know, play these two legs. I mean, the second leg is definitely in the Allianz Arena. So, you know, it can get a little bit of hostile there if you saw against the game against uh, PSG with Bayern. So, uh, in the Premier League, obviously, they're in a tough race, you know, with Arsenal. Now they're out of the Europa League. I don't know how because I thought they were playing really well and they let, you know, their first competitive penalty shootout happen at the Emirates Arena Stadium. And uh, I think, you know, this match will be a test because I think the winner of that match, if City wins against Bayern, I think they'll take it to the final and win it. Well, boys, this has been a a fun return for me back to FUVFC. Big ups to uh, my freshman year roommate, Danny, producing today, um, controlling the sticks for us. Nick Guzman and Gino Alva alongside me today. 
Always great talking footy with you boys. Exciting week for United States men's national team fans, and then club competition returns next week after the international break. We'll be back next week. I don't know who's going to be on it. I don't know what we're going to be talking about, but it will be something soccer, and it will be something fun. Have a good week, everyone.